Just before we get started with this week's episode, just wanted to give you a quick heads up that we are going to be talking about student mental health and suicide. So if that's not something you want to listen to, we've put it right at the end so you can just turn the episode off if you don't want to hear it. Hello guys and welcome to another episode of Inside Bristol Live, a weekly podcast that takes you behind the headlines and inside your local newsroom. I'm your host, Alex Ballinger, and sat with me today is our producer, Matt. Again, yeah, second Again, week. Back for the second week. I know. We've, who'd have thought? We've invited you back on. We've I'm had still here. Haven't oh, been fired. We haven't had any good feedback, but we haven't had any bad oh, feedback yeah. about your presence either. So <laughs> yeah, no, we're like neutral. We're Just taking that as a win. Neutral. We're taking that as a win. So you're you're welcome back on this show. Thank you. <laughs> Before we kick things off, let's start with our Twitter account at IBL Podcast. Follow us there. We drop links to the stories that we talk about. And you can also get us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can rate, review, subscribe to us. So make sure that you have done all of that for listening to this week's show. So this week, we are going to be speaking, first of all, to our digital editor, Luke Beardsworth, who has he's come on for a bit of a rant, basically, which I think, Matt, mm. you are quite passionate about it as well. Oh, yeah. We're going to be talking about ticket tights yeah. and people unscrupulously selling tickets, I suppose. And you've had personal experience with this, I'm guessing, have you? I used to try to be a musician. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it was always a big problem. It would always always be a big problem, especially with bigger shows. So I say it's... Uh, Were you big it, enough to have people trying to tight your tickets? Uh, I played shows big enough to have people try to tout the tickets to the show. So that would always have a knock-on effect to support acts, how much they were paid. But um, I'm looking forward to seeing what Luke's got to say about Things it. Things are going to get I quite think, heated there, I think. I think, I think yeah. yeah, people are going to be very impassioned about I this conversation. I think he's a bit cross. <laughs> yeah. And then next up on the show, we are going to be bringing in our political reporter, Esme Ashcroft. And I feel a little bit bad for Es because for the last couple of weeks, she has done nothing but write and talk about Bristol Arena, which is a massive thing that has really boiled over in recent days with Bristol City Council trying to make a decision on where the arena will be built. And so we've roped Ez in to talk about it just a little bit more for another 10, 15 minutes or so. So hopefully she will be able to give us some insight in her coverage into that. And then finally on this week's show, uh, we've got our reporter, education reporter Michael Yong on the show, who is going to be talking about the issue of student suicide. It's a really important issue and it's a really sensitive one that is very difficult to speak about reasonably and to try and get all sides of the story across. It's a very controversial subject. So Michael's going to be talking about his coverage, why we should be covering it and how we cover it as well. Right, let's get things started then. Uh, So this is our first conversation with Luke Beardsworth, our digital editor. Right, so let's get started with the serious business. Let's have the hard questions. Shorts in the office. Yeah, man. (laughs) <laughs> what are your th- what are your feelings? I know this has been floating around the office today, and it's uh, it's got some backs up. Yeah, I mean the, the weather's a bit glorious at the moment, as, as everyone can see. It, it's it's not comfortable in the office, even with the aircon on. I walk half an hour to get to work, so I would say if I'm wearing trousers, I'm warm mm, by the time I get a bit in. hot coming up those stairs as well. Yeah, absolutely. Eesh. So I just thought, you know what, I'm going to wear shorts, and hopefully that'll set an example that everyone can follow. And it, people have seemed to have picked up on it. There are people wearing shorts today in the office. and It's just a weekday. Long may I continue. walked in shocked today. It's like a virus that's spread around the office. More and more people are turning I up I love that shorts. nothing's been said about it as well. People just like, no, it's a normal thing to do just now. <laughs> See, personally, midweek, I'm not about shorts in the office. Weekend is fine. But in the week, I just feel like it's a bit of a stretch. I couldn't do it. Well, I mean, I, I actually have trousers with me in, in case I need to do anything outward facing. See, that's I worked this weekend and that's exactly what I had to do because I bought tr- I wore shorts into the office and then 
the content editor that was on said, can you go to Bedminster? Because I think there's been a fire. So I had to quickly change into jeans and run out the door because I thought it would be inappropriate to turn up in my short shorts. See, see the short shorts? Were they, <laughs> yeah. were they that short? They're like Primark Love Island shorts, yeah. Hot, <laughs> hot pants. Hot pants. Not quite hot pants, but they're not they're not long enough for breaking news. <laughs> I was going to say, like normal shorts, I think you could have gone away with that. We had, um, there was an incident in, um, in Preston once and uh, there was a really, really bad car accident. And um, I I was on the way back to my barbecue, so I was summer, summered up, vest, shorts, shades. I had to go over, go over and ask what was going on. They were like, who the hell are you? Matt, what are you thinking? Shorts in the office? I just didn't see this conversation going this way this quickly. <laughs> to, to be honest, <laughs> I'm, break I'm, the ice. I'm, surprised that, I'm surprised it's not just received unanimous approval. <laughs> I think, I mean, what I liked to, about shorts in the office was when, when you wore shorts in the office and you, you, you went for the shoes and socks. And everyone else has copied that same. That's a good point, thing. actually. I did they've think that got, was a curveball. Well, the boss is doing it, so <laughs> so because we'll shorts is that. one thing. Shorts is one thing, but then shorts and shoes is is bold. Well, that's uh, that's me saying, yeah. Look, I'm still your boss. I'm still at work. <laughs> <laughs> There's authority in the it's shoes. A power play. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I might come in the vest one day, but I'll have a tie. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Right, let's get on with the actual conversation. And I feel like you two are going to educate me here because this is something you're both very passionate about and something mm-hmm. that I'm not that clued in on. But we're talking about ticket types, basically. Yes. Um, so talk uh, me through what is the what is the issue? Well, the reason I want to talk about ticket types is um, we've had the Kasabian gig in Bristol recently. And obviously the, um, the tickets went on sale. They sold out very quickly. They quickly reappeared on secondary websites, secondary ticket selling websites for astronom- astronomical amounts. Um, amounts that you wouldn't want to be paying basically um touting historically it was just people individuals on the street sort of buying tickets and reselling them at inflated prices with the birth of the internet and all that comes with it it's just a lot easier for people to do that on a wider scale and make a lot more money it's you know if you go on viagogo who who are the uh, most controversial of the secondary ticketing platforms after any major concerts come on sale then you know seconds or immediately, you will see, I won't want to put a number to it, but a lot of tickets on sale immediately at a high price. In 2012, when Dispatches ran their show on Channel 4, it was shown that Viagogo um, were actually receiving tickets from the promoters directly to sell at an inflated price, which, you know, it's one thing to sort of look at it and go, that this is individuals sort of making money out of us, but when there's actually deals going on like that. So Viagogo actually tried to not have that be shown on TV. They tried to say they um, wanted to protect their consumers and it was overruled and shown on tv um so yeah it's 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 very sophisticated it's it's very frustrating for people that want to go and enjoy gigs and not pay three figures why is it that it frustrates you personally so much then is it because of the impact on the fans who genuinely want to go for a reasonable price yeah i mean to me i I actually hear um there's a there's there's a couple examples so say like muse played shepherd's bush empire last year and I managed to get tickets for that. But I would have quite happily paid £200 to Muse for that. And that wouldn't have bothered me because I really wanted to be there. And I was lucky enough that I managed to go. But the idea of paying £200 to someone that's just sat on the internet and, you know, bought tickets and immediately wants to sell them on, I don't know, it disgusts me a little bit. And what what makes it frustrating is then you, you get um, you get certain people in positions of power and I, I, I don't have their names to hand, but you get people like saying, oh, it's entrepreneurial to do this. It's like it's not entrepreneurial, actually. It's exploiting people. And the idea that it is entrepreneurial and that that is an accepted viewpoint is really frustrating as well as 
the, the fact that you might have to pay more for a ticket, which is frustrating as well. I think that's a good point that you raised. I'm sure a lot of people would be happy to pay that money to the bands themselves because that's who you feel like you're getting something from, isn't it? You're getting an experience. And if that's what the demand is like, then you'll pay the price based on the demand for the band. But if you're paying for someone else's service that haven't really provided you any sort of service other than just buying the tickets immediately. A lot of venues won't do it. They won't allow you to uh, pay directly to the artist. They won't oh, really? allow you because they, they have these contracts and deals set up with these with these other companies that sell tickets. So that's why there's always extra charges and things on tickets is to, to make that money back for that contract with that venue. Um, it happens all over the world. Uh, so, so it's impossible. Some artists really do try hard to to make things direct, not just in music, in comedy and in, in, in other performance as well but but that's that's a massive issue touring bands won't be able to actually play certain venues if they choose to take that route so it really hinders the bands uh, and, and ties their hands behind their back as well is, is this something that is across different kind of events and things like that as well does it happen for more than just music yeah i mean music's um the best example isn't it because uh, you know it, for some for whatever reason it doesn't seem to sort of be frowned upon like it is with other things the idea that someone would do this for football tickets is like there'd be outrage mm-hmm. and it does and it does happen like we got we got offered champions league final tickets for three grand for example and clearly, clearly it didn't go because i'm not made of money but mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it does happen but for some reason with music it just seems to be accepted and there's a couple of reasons for that i think and uh, i think one is that people get really obsessed about musicians, so they're willing to do it, so they're easier to exploit. But two, you've got um, companies like Get Me In and Seatwave, which are secondary websites, but they're owned by Ticketmaster, which is, a, you know, sell them in the first place. And it's like, well, it's it's actually in Ticketmaster's best interest that these tickets end up on these secondary platforms and then they make more money. So that places like Ticketmaster are actually touting from themselves then, basically. They buy the tickets, they have companies that will buy up the tickets from themselves and then sell them for more, is that right? I mean, there's no evidence that that's, that that's the case as far as I'm concerned. Via Gogo have been have essentially been caught doing this, but Ticketmaster, uh, Ticketmaster have not. But, you know, if Ticketmaster own their own secondary platforms, then... And they they take if someone buys something from um, Get Me In, then there is an extensive booking fee, and I don't mean like a five pound booking fee. I mean if you buy a ticket on there for two hundred pounds, you're paying forty pounds as a booking fee, and the the money that Ticketmaster will will make, will make as a result of that is is quite quite a lot. So they're benefiting twice almost. And so how does it actually work then? So when tickets come on sale, how, what's the process for these tickets and websites ending up with the tickets? It's a difficult question, difficult um, question to answer. To be honest, what we know is that there are people, individuals who will sit there and and who will who will buy tickets and put them straight straight on there for sale. But what what we don't know is sort of the extent of the sophistication behind it. We don't know, for example, whether or not a, a ticket company might allocate to the secondary platform and say, "Here's some tickets." We don't know that, that happens. We've Viagogo uh, have been you know caught having deal, deals with promoters and things like that, but we don't know that any of the primary ticketing sites are doing that. That is that part of the problem then as well, is that consumers, when they're looking to buy their tickets, they don't know what the processes were behind, you know, what they don't really know what they're paying for because uh, they um, see this price. I mean, one of the issues that's, that's caught people in the past is that if you go onto one of these, uh, a ticket buying website and it will, tickets could be sold out, but it will present a ticket to you from the secondary site, but not make it clear that you're buying from a secondary site. And, and then so you could end up buying Ed Sheeran tickets for £200 and, and you think that that's the going rate, so you just buy them. Viagogo were particularly bad for this, and as a result, Sainsbury's pulled out a partnership with them. Google have clamped down on them as well. So it's it's something that big companies are recognising that actually it's a little it's a little bit immoral what they're doing. So it's perfectly legal as well, then, is it? There's nothing to stop these companies doing it. No, absolutely not. And that, that's part of the problem. There's been a lot of pressure on um, 
on the government to to sort of set down harsher guidelines on it or harsher rules, but it just doesn't seem to happen. And uh, it was the the idea that um, this process is entrepreneurial was actually something that a member of the Tory party came out with, which, you know, uh, it doesn't come as a surprise, but it's pretty frustrating. And I suppose there is quite a big difference between you know, maybe like a student having a bit of spare cash, buying a ticket and trying to sell it on for a little bit more, you know, because you can get only get a handful at a time and then a massive company doing it to a large way to the audience. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't believe it should happen at all. I, I, think, I think there should be a cap on it. Football tickets you can't resell and the, things like this. I think that um, the, the website Twickets, which is where anybody who's got any moral value goes on to, <laughs> um, Twickets will let, you, will let you sell tickets at face value or they will let you put 20% on top for whatever reason. But, you know, that that keeps it at a level playing field. And I've sold, you know, festival tickets and things like that on there. And I've actually bought tickets for gigs that were sold out on there and been really thankful about that. So people should be using Twickets. And you can also use things like, you know, artists will set up hashtags so people can so people can um, sort of search on that hashtag and find tickets on there at face value. And that's, that's always a good way around it too. Getting into group communities of fans always really helps out when you're trying to do this. So what are the fixes then really? How can you how can you prevent this happening? Well, there's, there's numerous things that people are trying to do. So Ed Sheeran, for example, cancelled any ticket that he could he found went through via GoGo. And then and then his um, his promoting company, Kilimanjaro, actually put a lot of pressure on via GoGo to refund anyone who bought them tickets on via GoGo. So that's, that's good, but that actually doesn't help people because that doesn't get people into gigs. That's just make, making sure that people who people are annoyed that they've had to do this. But that's that's the first step, though, really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with being strict on it. But I mean, Glastonbury have got got it perfect. You know, you need photo ID, and you, that's what you need to do. You need to upload it, get approved. So I think one way to do it could be if these ticket insights, you had to have a photo ID on there, had been approved, and then that came with your ticket, and you they had to match up. I um that that Muse show that I was referring to earlier, Shepherd's Bush. The the thing there was you had to come with the credit card you had bought the ticket with, and that otherwise you weren't getting in. So unless you hand over your credit card to a stranger who you've sold this ticket on for a profit, which you're not which is high risk, yeah, yeah you're clearly <laughs> not going to do, and then you're not, you know, you're not getting in. In the smaller scale, would named tickets help? You know, where the ticket just has your name on it, and you need yeah. something with you. Yeah, I mean, a n- name ticket with some sort of ID. I mean, th- the problem is there are there are situ- then this will always be the excuse not to do it is that there are always situations where people have honest reasons to, to want to pass tickets on, and what you do in that situation, and that's where the problems arise. So do you then? Hand the tickets back to the um, to the venue or the promoters, and then they they redistribute them. That's probably one way of doing it. Maybe you you call up and get a refund and make your ticket invalid, and then they can just sell another one, and all that sort of thing. Because obviously it comes with barcodes and stuff. Don't know what the answer is to that, but you know it's it shouldn't be used as an excuse not to make it easier for fans, and it seems to benefit everyone but the consumer at the moment, which is pretty grim. It's it's disgusting that it's hard to continue to be honest that's uh, it sounds it seems like a really easy thing to fix though that that the whole ticket thing you could easily just give the give the whoever you bought it from give them a call and say i don't want this anymore so they go to resell it if it doesn't resell you don't get a refund if you if it does resell you get a full refund yeah i mean it it doesn't seem hard there's there's, like i said there's several different paths you can say but no no one's no one cares enough it always costs money to crack down on things as well, doesn't it? You yeah. know, for for example, photo IDs, getting that sent in early, getting it sent back to you, it all costs money and it was time consuming, isn't it? Which I suppose could then impact on consumers again because it could put the face value up if they've got to go through all these processes. And ultimately, like, it's almost it's almost getting to the point where artists are putting the ticket prices up to under the justification of stopping touts. So in um, in 2010, I went to see Muse in an arena and it was £40. And then last year I went to see them and it was £100. 
and that seems to happen a lot if you if you want to go and see any top tier artist in a top venue it seems the price just seems to have gone through the roof and i don't know if that's because that make, that does make it harder for touts because that if the face value is 100 pounds it's hard to sell that on for an extreme profit so if something if a ticket was 40 pounds you could buy what you could buy five for 200 pounds sell them on at 100 pound each and you've got 500 pounds all of a sudden that's a real easy thing to do so maybe like you know tickets price have gone up for that but I don't know. That doesn't seem like a. That doesn't seem like the solution. Just putting ticket prices up, for then everyone's paying more. Who's it happen with then? Is it mainly the biggest events that are, that are being targeted by these people? Yeah, you know, major artists. Uh, it's, it's astounding that the Ed Sheeran one that was one that w- was was hammered and it, kudos to Ed Sheeran for trying to trying to do something about that and or his you know his management for trying to do something about that. Um, but it is the, it's the top top level things. But also, I, you know, we were talking about Kasabian at the O2 in Bristol. That's a good example because Kasabian are an arena band and they were playing a small venue. That is the sort of thing that gets hammered because people really want to be at that gig. I really wanted to be at that gig. I couldn't get tickets. I, I tried to log on and buy tickets, but they're gone immediately. And everyone in our office said the same. And they were straight away on by Gogo. And, it's, you know, it's, it's very frustrating. So when you're doing that thing when you know, nine o'clock in the morning tickets go on sale and everyone's sat around their computers and you've got your mates trying to do it so you can all get tickets to it and they all just disappear like that. Is that the problem then, do you think? Is it is it the ticket type companies just buying up masses of tickets and that's why people are struggling to get Yeah, it? I wouldn't go as far as calling them ticket type companies as such, but it is, you know, it's, it's people doing it on a large scale and making a lot of money out of it and that is the problem that, you know, people are straight in and that's, they're going in there with one thought and they could, they could you know, if you get, if you get a successful gig, if you buy enough tickets, you could pay your own salary for a month. <laughs> the thing is, whenever, whenever we, we sort of say um, we're annoyed about this, you do get the people, you do get people say, oh, it's just entrepreneurial, people are just making money. And then you've got people who um, might say, it, well, it's, you know, if people are stupid enough to pay for it, then they, should, then they get what they deserve. It's just bad people being bad. I knew this was going to get heated. <laughs> <laughs> um, Matt, you have been a musician. Yeah. You're in some sort of... Uh, Banjo, some, tr- banjo trio, weren't <laughs> Some description of, of bands, yeah. It does have a massive impact on artists, smaller on a smaller scale as well. Like five hundred to to a thousand cap venues. There are small niches of people that are re- into really specific types of music, and those tickets get touted as well. It's it doesn't happen on a massive scale, but when it does happen, it has a much bigger impact because you've got things like the the artists, how much they get paid. Uh, especially support acts for the, for those types of shows, quite often they'll be. It's hard these days to get w- what's called a guarantee. So if you're a support act, you would have a guarantee of what you would be paid for that gig. It's harder and harder to get those guarantees because the money isn't isn't always there. And also for for artists to grow, there's no way to really get discovered in a 500 cap venue when. 30 or 40 people aren't there and those 30 or 40 people could could have been those the people that are really going to dig your music you know so it, it has an impact on the artist it has an impact on so many different areas it has impact on high level high level shows it has impact on smaller mid-level gigs every single person i know that that is is in a band or relatively successful within their niche has negative experience with t- ticket outs and and i think all of them pretty much wish that they didn't exist and it didn't happen it's just that it's so impossible you feel kind of powerless to be able to actually do anything about it so if you want to take the money away from from these guys where should you go when you're buying your tickets if you're buying you shouldn't you should try your best not to buy tickets from you know these high high, these people that sell them for extortionate markups the place to go is twickets 
Twickets is the, um, well, I think they call themselves the ethical reselling site, which is a great place. Doesn't always work, but it's a good place to start. And then you need to get into Facebook groups of the band you like. You need to be going in there and sort of saying, look, I want a ticket for this. And usually you'll find one. Um, really good example of this is that the, the Frank Turner Festival that he runs in London, four-day thing. I had I had seated tickets for a full weekend last year and um, it's just all weekend people just popping up saying, you know, who wants to trade standing for seated, that sort of thing. Now, if I if I tried to go buy those on one of these secondary sites, I'd have been paying a lot more. And as it was, I just I was able to just trade. So just, you know, interacting with the community is a good way of doing it if Twickets isn't of use. And then sometimes there's local Facebook groups as well, isn't there, where people will, you know, for events and gigs in Bristol, they will drop tickets in there to try and get rid of them if they can't go or they'll try and pick some up if they're looking for some. So yeah. they can be a good place to check out as well. I guess the danger is then, and what the the thing that would stop people from doing that is if you're just in a generic group, what's stopping someone in there for going, actually, I know it's a high-value ticket. I'm going to take it off you for base value and I'm going to sell it for an inflated thing. And that, that, that's always, that's always a little bit of a fear. And that, I suppose that's the advantage of going onto a fan forum or something like that. It's a little bit more trust involved, hopefully. So it's a vicious cycle until someone cracks down on it, basically. Yeah. Yeah. But it won't happen. But I mean, the, the, the ultimate thing is if someone's spending money on a ticket, you want to be spent, you want that money to be, it's somewhere reinvested into the music industry or making someone some money who's created this beautiful thing. And if you're buying from a secondary market, that is the last thing that's happening. Luke, thanks very much. We can get back to arguing about music on Twitter now. Cool, great. Thank you. Thanks very much to Luke and Matt for joining me on that conversation. Let us know what you think about Ticket Types as well at IBL Podcast. Right, let's go into our next conversation. We have roped in our political reporter, Esme Ashcroft, who's going to be talking about Bristol Arena and the controversy over where that should be built. Ez, I'm really sorry about this because I know that your entire life for the last, what, week or two, probably? Oh, maybe no, months. Uh, months, months, is it? months, <laughs> months, months. It's just been about this topic, about Bristol Arena. And last week, was it three days you were in meetings? We had, it was technically one meeting, which was adjourned twice, but it took place over three days. And I think I worked out it was a total of around 12 hours altogether. Not that you're counting. Not that I'm counting. (laughs) And not that that city hall was incredibly hot or anything. But the meeting itself was a scrutiny meeting into a value for money report into the two possible arena locations. So for anyone that hasn't been following this, and hopefully everyone has been following your sterling work, but there's two sites that have been earmarked as potential to build a new massive arena so we can have lovely events like Ed Sheeran and Taylor Swift and all that sort of thing. Mm. And they are one by Temple Meads, is that right? Wasteland by Temple Meads. Yeah, that's the original site, which the council has already spent more than 12 million on. And that's been in the works for quite a long time as well, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. since 2013. And then the other option is a shed in Filton, basically. Oh, well, shed <laughs> might be a slight disservice. It's the Brabazon Hangar where the famous Brabazon planes were built. Um, it is, yes, on Filton Airfield, which, despite the plethora of emails, is technically just within the Bristol city boundary. It is not South Gloucestershire. It's having an, an area pack- of dispute, as it were, yes. chance. Lots of people have been emailing me. You can almost touch South Gloucestershire, but it is technically within the Bristol city boundary. So it would still be within Bristol. So it's, when I say shed, I am joking, obviously, it's massive hangar, huge. isn't it? Absolutely huge. Have you been to the site? I haven't been to the site, but I've seen pictures of the site and it is massive. I've been told that you could fit the O2 arena w- within it. So, you know, it's it's certainly big enough. And why do we need an arena? Because obviously it's a nice luxury to have, so you can have all these events and things like that. 
but it's been such a heated debate around this. But why are people all getting so wound up and why is it so important? Well, why do we need an arena? First of all, I guess technically we don't need an arena. It, it is a luxury. But the thinking is that having an arena would really kind of elevate Bristol. It's one of the only core cities without an arena. You get lots of benefits in terms of cultural benefits, such as having the music and artists and other events being held there. But you also get a kind of um, a ripple effect in terms of income for hotels, bars, restaurants and all the associated nightlife that goes with it. The argument, well, there are many arguments about why it's A, taken so long. Lots of people are saying, you know, this arena should have been built five years ago. But the kind of the current arguments are between the two offers which are on the table. To really simplify it, the city centre location would be largely funded by the council. So it would be publicly funded and then eventually publicly owned. But the Brabzon Arena would be largely privately funded by Malaysian investment firm YTL. So it's kind of your public versus private. Also, you've got arguments over location. A lot of people are saying you need it in the city centre because that's where most of these bars and restaurants are. That's where, you know, the logical place is. People can get to it. It's right next to the train station. It makes good infrastructure sense. And on the kind of the converse side with Filton, people are saying it's too far out. You might make a second city centre between Bristol and South Gloucestershire and that would drag money from the city centre. So who is supporting which location then? I think the biggest split is between our MPs, actually. Um, Thangham Debonair and Karen Smith, who are um, Bristol West and Bristol South, say that it needs to remain in the city centre. And a lot of that is to do with the fact that they feel that a arena in the city centre would really benefit South Bristol in terms of, you know, helping people with employment and opportunities and the cultural offering. Kerry McCarthy and Darren Jones have, haven't actually kind of overtly come out and said Filton is our preferred site. Darren has said, essentially, I'm happy for it to be in Filton, but only if we get improvements to the infrastructure around that area. Because, I mean, anyone who drives around there, the A38 is just a nightmare. And of course, Kerry has said, well, it needs to be something which Bristol can afford. And if the City Council, which is already facing £108 million worth of debt, by 2023 if it can't afford to build an arena then it just shouldn't build one and who can make the final decision and when will we get one because it hasn't been made yet has it despite all of this talk it hasn't been made yet so initially we were thinking that the decision would be made on july the 3rd which is next tuesday at a big bristol city council cabinet meeting and the papers for that were due to be released this tuesday because they have to be released five working days beforehand now at the 11th hour marvin came out and said we're not making the decision. We're deferring it. And that's that's absolutely fine. But now we, um, the latest news, the latest information is that we'll get it kind of sometime before August. So delay, deferring it by a couple of weeks. Now, the decision is ultimately Marvin's. You know, he is the mayor. He's the head of the council. So he doesn't have to listen to anyone. And interestingly, I guess the kind of overall message from scrutiny from that mammoth 12-hour session was that they would prefer to see it in Bristol City Centre. But he doesn't have to listen to that. It's completely his choice. Are there financial concerns about where they build it as well? Because as you said, the council is under a lot of financial strain at the moment. And it's like you said, it's a luxury as well. 
Is there a financial concern about where they build it? Will there be a difference between the two? Yes. So the independent KPMG report into the two arenas basically said that originally we were thinking a city centre arena would cost 122 million, but they said that they have found that it will cost 156 million. And obviously Bristol City Council would have to either borrow or, or just find a way to make up that shortfall. Of course, because the Filton Airfield Arena would be privately funded, that's not really a concern. I mean, Colin Skellett, the chairman of YTL, has told me that it would cost him £80 million to do the arena and another £20 million for some associated works. So they reckon that they can build their arena for £100 million. But interestingly, during the scrutiny meetings, um, the contractors for the city centre arena came out and said, no, we can, we can build it for £122 million. I can guarantee you we will build this for you for £122 million. We might even be able to knock 10% off. So that is basically the reason for the delay from Marvin Rees. He's saying, well, this is a new offer, which the contractors are disputing because they said that actually they made this offer last autumn. And he's saying, I need to consider this. And once I've looked at the contract, we shall see where we go from there. So people are getting really heated about this in the conversations. There's a lot of dispute about where it should be built, where will benefit most, you know, where will be the cheapest option, things like that. What do you see your role as in between all this? Because I'm sure people, I'm sure people, (laughs) I'm sure people will uh, sort of direct their anger at you when they're frustrated by some of these Mm. stories. Is that something that you find? Yeah, I've had a couple of aggressive tweets and emails, but in essence, my role is just to present both sides of the story in Anything that I write, it's not my personal view that I'm trying to put across. It's it's the opinions of somebody who I have spoken to or interviewed. You know, it's not, it, this isn't my personal feelings. I would never try and input my feelings into that purely because, I mean, obviously I have an opinion, but I just don't think it's professional for me to do that in the same way that I don't tell people how I vote. Is that something that you've come to handle quite well as your time as a political reporter? Because I imagine this happens with pretty much everything that you write about where there's a split down the middle yes, and you're I right mean, in the middle. I frequently get accused of being really left wing or really right wing. And actually, you know, I just, I don't tell people. And as soon as somebody asks, I just shut it down. I mean, but no, it's not something I would ever tell people. It seems like if you are being a crit- being accused of bias in both directions, that's pretty much yeah, the definition of balance. Right. So yeah, that's yeah. pretty much definition <laughs> of balance. So do you think this is going to run on then, this Bristol Arena story? <laughs> It could, potentially. I mean, it will run whatever happens, whatever decision Marvin makes. And I have to say, I don't envy him because, you know, like you said, there is a great amount of feeling on both sides, so much passion, so much want from everyone to see something happen, especially because that site is so derelict at the moment in the city centre. But yes, you know, it'll be a big deal when we get the spade in the ground. It'll be the big deal when it opens. So this will run on for years and years and I, of course, very much look forward to reporting every coffin's bit. Now, I'm going to twist your arm here, and I know you don't like to come down too heavily on either side of a fence, but who's the first person that you'd want to see perform at a Bristol Ooh. Arena? Mm, oh, that is so tricky. I'm going Taylor Swift. To have I, I want to see Taylor, going Taylor I love Swift. Taylor Swift. Well, we think, so it'll be either between 12,000 and 16,000 seats, so it's not going to be huge. I mean, I'm going to have to take it back to the old school and say block party. My first what? love. Really? Yeah. That is, 2008 has just dived into the room all of a sudden. I know. Are they still, even are they still going? Are they still going? Can they sell that out? <gasps> Most deaf. Are they still going? Do you reckon? Yeah, I think they're still going. We need to check this. <laughs> Vlog pie. Okay. Absolute curveball. Matt, 
You can't say yourself. I would probably go for... Uh, I'd love for Celine to, to make Dion? a... <laughs> To make a comeback. Oh my and, goodness. Uh, what? Supported by Savage Garden. Wow. That's what, what I'm is going wrong for. with you two? Hey, the 90s cool. Yes. They just wanted their music back. <laughs> I thought Block Party was weird. <laughs> no, definitely. I want Celine to stage a comeback and uh, go and watch that sweet voice. <laughs> the sweet, sweet lyrics. This is wild. I'm learning so much about so both good of at you love from songs. this. I've gone down an absolute rabbit warren now. <laughs> Uh, Maybe we could have a triple header. We could have a Celine block party and Taylor Swift. Maybe we should we header. should put this once it's spades in the ground. We should go. Look, we've got a pitch. Mm. Mm. We want. Well, I I'd like to throw it out to the Bristol Live readership. What we should have a vote of who yeah, should be the first us. person. Who should That's be the a tweet good idea. Us. We should yeah. do tweet that. the podcast. Yeah. Who would you like to see? Let's Serious a, answers only, please. We'll put, we'll put a poll out. When this episode goes out, we'll put a poll out on our Twitter account. Celine, oh, Celine Dion. <laughs> Look, you know the laws on subliminal messaging, Matt. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> right. oh, the Canadians are available. <laughs> <laughs> right, Ez, thank you very much for coming no on the worries. show. No worries. Thanks for having me. I'm sure this issue is just going to run on and on with Bristol Arena. So thanks very much to Esme for talking us through her coverage. Just before we speak to Michael, I just want to give you a quick heads up that we're going to be talking about student mental health and suicide. So if that's not something you want to hear, just turn the episode off now. Michael is going to talk us through some of the experiences that he's had reporting on those stories. So let's hear from him now. I'm Michael Young. I am the education reporter on Bristol Life. So, Michael, we're going to be talking about something today that is quite a sensitive subject, mm. but it's something you've been working quite closely on for quite a while now hasn't it it's been how long has it been about a year maybe longer oh probably longer i would say um all the way back to january of last year so about 18 months i'd say so we're talking about student mental health particularly around bristol because that is the area you cover and that's where the stories that you come from is it fair to say that there is a student mental health crisis in this country at the moment would you say I wouldn't call it a crisis. A crisis is is uh, something a lot bigger. Uh, at the moment, there are you can certainly see if nothing is going to be done, if the universities don't take this seriously enough, there will be a crisis, and it is not very far away. And we're starting to see it sadly in Bristol. Um, we know of um, several students who have taken their own lives. I always find it difficult to use the words committing suicide because it's a very archaic term that goes back to where suicide was against the law we, we know a lot of students who have taken their own lives uh, and it started a while back in october 2016 where we had um, a small sort of group of freshers and then every couple of months we hear of one more more recently in april and may this year we've had three in three weeks and it's just you know it's heartbreaking as a reporter to hear that or to report from it and this is, as I mentioned, quite a tricky subject to cover because it affects so many people for a start. You know, there's so many people that knew these people, but they're also in the same institutions and maybe going through similar experiences. But reporting on suicide is a difficult thing to do because of you don't want people to see the story that you've written and be affected by it in a negative way. You know, that could could lead to them harming themselves as well. Is that something that you have to try quite hard to balance when you're writing yeah, it's, it's at the very forefront of my mind whenever i write stories around student deaths or any sort of deaths where somebody's taken their own lives um partially because of personal experience you know i've i've known friends 
I've lost friends uh, through suicide and I've lost friends through attempted suicide and then something else after. So it's a, it's a subject that's not just very personal to me, but you know, I, I know how it works. I grew up in Singapore, one of the cities in the world with the highest rates of suicide. You know, we, we exposed it from a very, very young age, sadly. And so whenever I write about the suicides of especially a young person, it's always in the forefront of my mind. You know, we, we try not to be blasé about it and think this is it. You know, this is uh, another death. There must be a human element to it. And we try to take advice. You know, I, I speak to the Samaritans quite a lot. And um, if they criticize my coverage, I'm very willing to change it. And so is our news desk, which is a, a great thing to know, I think. But and the reason for this is that studies have been done, haven't they, which have shown that media reporting can influence people with mental health problems mm. to hurt themselves. And so as a result of that, news organisations are really taking a look at the way, or they should be if they're not, but generally news organisations have really taken a, a very hard look at themselves when they report on mental health and suicides and things like that, aren't they? Mm. Well, yes. I mean, I, I wish I could say the same of all newspapers or online media outlets. And though people naturally bend all media together. And with the case of the Bristol deaths um, so far, and sadly we've, we've had a lot of coverage about it, a lot of media coverage about it. And so, so, so what that means is some media outlets don't necessarily follow the Samaritans guidelines or they don't take it seriously enough. You know, they, they list all the deaths. They, they put all the names and all the pictures again. And we know that is not, the advice. Uh, we should not do that. We never do that at the Bristol Post. Uh, I have to say, way back when this first happened, when we had the, the first three fresh years, we probably weren't that trained in it. But it was great then the Samaritans came in and said, look, you should not be doing this, you should be doing this. And then every year since we've had training with the Samaritans, which I think is a, it's a fantastic thing. And this isn't something that we opt in to do is it there are ethical guidelines for journalists that you have to stick to when reporting mm. on, on mental health and suicides and if you don't you can be in a lot of trouble for it can't you so there can you talk us through a little bit about those sort of rules that you've got to consider of course so these these rules if you like they're not in our ipso code you know they're not the um they're not in the editorial code neither are they in in the law it's not enshrined in law but it is in the samaritan guidelines which the bristol post and Bristol Live say we want to follow. And the guidelines include not being explicit about the way somebody took their own lives. And you would not say something like um, how a person was found hanged. At the same time, you also won't say how many times this has happened before and try to make it as if it's a cluster. And you shouldn't draw links where there are no links. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. You should not draw unnecessary links especially although people sometimes read stories and come to their conclusions and we know people don't read one version of the story like they do back in the day where they would have one newspaper and that's it people now read one media report after another media report after another media report they didn't see it on the telly they see it on maybe two versions of the telly and so people become quite not just sick of it but people then merge everything together so as a, as a media group, uh, not just at Bristol Live, but, you know, we must work with other media groups, the national papers, the BBC, the I, you know, ITV, and tell them, look, if we're going to cover this, let's do it in this manner. And the Samaritans have, that, have those guidelines. So why, if everyone follows those guidelines, you know, we'll be grand, really. I think that's a really interesting point that you raise. 
well, a couple of interesting points actually from those Samaritan guidelines, because one of the key criticisms that you tend to get when you report on suicide, no matter how responsibly you do it, is people say you've given too much detail. You know, readers may mm. comment and they may say you've given too much detail because that is in the Samaritan's guidelines that you shouldn't give too much detail. But the confusion seems to come in when you report the cause of death, mm. which is not the same as reporting too much detail. Mm. Too much detail about the cause of death, it tends to be t- exact method, doesn't it? So you mm. don't encourage other people to do the same thing themselves. It's very important that, that there is that difference. And we talked about, um, I talked about this to Papyrus, which is a suicide prevention charity, maybe not as big as the Samaritans, but specific for young people. And I spoke to their chief exec recently and talked to them about the difference of covering suicide against the method. They would never, never, their advice is never write about the method of a suicide, but we must talk about suicide. You must not avoid the subject. So just because you found out somebody's died as a media outlet, you, you have to cover it. And there are reasons for that. And and one, one reason I was going, hoping to bring up was what the Samaritans have previously told us that when you report on on a family's you know trauma or sadness or heartbreak, that might you know in future if somebody read that piece and they were going through a similar situation, they would think twice because they've got loved ones, and so that's that's the difficult that's the difficult bit about covering covering those sort of stories. Is sadly uh, the case in Bristol where we we've had fourteen in a space of something like eighteen months. And whereas that sounds, that is actually quite a lot. And we've got, you know, stats from the Office of National Statistics. It came out this week. Uh, if you're listening to this next week, then it came out last week. That it was a case of we've had 95 deaths at universities, which is the highest level in three years, which is very, very sad. Um, and we feel it, we feel it, you know, writing about it. It's not just, it's not just a story for us. And talking about the links and connections you know you're not supposed to draw connections where there aren't any one of the other things that we have been criticized before is for talking about these student deaths as student deaths you know they happen within the same institution Mm. but there is an obvious connection because they're in the same institution what are your thoughts on balancing that you know should we be reporting that these are all happening within the same institution well we can't avoid it i mean you can't say 19 year olds died and then the following week say 20 year olds died when they're both from Bristol University. Um, there is obvious uh, public interest in, in the sense that is the university then doing enough? And it's a question that, to be fair, we ask of the university quite a lot. And to their credit, to Bristol University's credit, they have never shied away from the questions. There are universities and institutions which try to sugarcoat the situation. I don't know how you do that, but, you know, clever PR stunts. But to be fair to Bristol University, they have done it They've been very honest about it. And, uh, you know, for, for that reason, in terms of dealing with us, I've never found them to be to be a problem. That's it. You know, the question still remains if they've done enough. And that's a question we'll always ask them, which is, you know, hopefully a, a good thing that we keep asking the people in positions of power to take care of our young people if they're doing enough to take care of our young people. I think you're completely right with the public interest aspect as well, where to start off with, when news organisations started talking about student mental health, some universities didn't respond in the best way, did they? They sort of tried to deny that there was a problem, tried to accuse news organisations of irresponsible reporting and things like that. But now what we're starting to see is that it's not a minority of cases that are being blown out of proportion by by the news. Mm. 
and universities are trying to do things, aren't they? Mm -hmm. I know Bristol University have got some have intentions of improving student mental health and how they react to parents. But it, what are the what are the plans for them? In October 2016, when we first got the news of three freshers' deaths, I still remember their names. I remember their date of births. I remember everything about how they died. I went to all the inquests. Really did break my heart. The university responded in the first manner in a very sort of protective sort of way, which is a good thing, but not necessarily the right thing. And what happened is then they realise actually, you know, let's open it up. We need people to talk about mental health. We need people to talk about suicides. We can't make it a taboo subject. So they open up about it, which surprised me because we got caught into a meeting and we decided, look, we're going to try and help here. Um, at the same time, they have a, a fantastic professor at Bristol University called Professor David Gunnell, and he works with the Samaritans and he's their main man on the you know academic side of things. And he's very good. And I, I, I just spoke to him a couple of weeks ago and asked him if they had a problem with our coverage. And he said, absolutely none. And, you know, if they do, I told him, you know, ring me straight away because we will change it. Um, now, talking about Bristol University's plans and more importantly as well, UE's plans, Bristol University pumped a million pounds per year into their student support services. That's a great thing to see. They've put in more hours they have put in two new mental health advisors. Um, there, there are more coming, I'm sure. I don't know the full plans yet. You know, they, they are rejigging their welfare system in, in the student halls, whether that's for better or for worse. We don't know until we, we see it happen. There, there are obviously always going to be people who are saying it's not enough. I agree. It's never going to be enough. But, you know, at least the university is making some changes. I don't want this to become a PR for the university because at the same time, I, w I would question if those changes are enough. Uh, and same thing with UE. We have uh, the Vice-Chancellor Steve West, Professor Steve West. And Professor West is the head of Universities UK's Mental Health Awareness. UE's taken a real lead role in this. Uh, and it's great to see that they want to play a key part in this. They've lost some students themselves. I'm not going to repeat the names here, but they've lost some students themselves. And when I spoke to their students about their mental health and how they dealt with it, it was very enriching. It felt incredible to talk to these students and find that they are now becoming lighthouses, if you like, to their batchmates and just telling them, look, I can talk about it. Come and talk about it. And, you know, the main point is you're not alone. One of the other things that is quite a hot topic at the moment is the issue of data protection. Mm. And... The question there is whether universities should be telling parents when they know that one of their students is having mental health difficulties in there. What is the sort of discussion there and what could that bring about? I'm really grateful you brought that up because um, at the moment, Bristol University is thinking about an opt-in system and they're hoping, I think they, they are thinking about trialling it for September, where essentially students could put down on their university application form if they had a mental health issue and, and it, well, they're not supposed to be discriminated against it. What they're going to have now is an option to say, if you had a mental health issue, what do you want us to tell your parents? According to data protection laws at the moment, you are, the university have no obligation and you, they don't have to, and they should not really uh, be telling your parents if you were a student and you had a mental health issue. This opt-in system means students can now say, if I'm not feeling great, I can't deal with this myself. I'm going to let the university make that decision whether to tell my parents. I think it's a great idea. I think it's better than a blanket thing 
across the board because I think that that becomes a little bit tricky. But having this opt-in system means students who maybe have a mental health problem but don't necessarily want to talk about it with a counsellor or a stranger, really, they can now say, actually put that down in case I need it. I can talk to my parents or somebody else can talk to my parents or break, break the news to my parents. And then, you know, we can take it from there. I think it's a very good idea. I, I hope it happens. It's being talked about at a government level now. Um, the minister is going to actually come to Bristol to talk to uh, Professor West about this. So I think it's a fantastic thing. Yeah. It, it does seem like a really good way to help students bridge the gap between being students and being children effectively to then being adults. And it mm. shows that the university are really taking taking the duty of care that they have to their students seriously, but without infringing on their, on their personal life as well. So of it's, course, yeah. yeah, it seems like a good way of making, bridging that gap between yeah, being a yeah. school student and, and being an adult, basically. It needs a little bit of tightening up. They need to talk about um, perimeters and when, when the university might say, yeah, let's go and talk to your parents uh, or when, this is when I have to tell your parents. It needs it to be a little bit more black and white than it is at the moment. Um, but you know it's great that we're exploring that option um, more universities could deal with that and I speak to other education reporters across the country and a few universities like Bristol and UWE are open to talking about it actually and you know we are lucky that Bristol and UWE want to talk about it want to engage about it um, but there are, there are very few universities like that across the country we focus quite heavily on student mental health, uh, but there is also a flip side to this, which is about mm -hmm. lecturers' mental health. And we've recently seen one of your stories that was hugely important, but about a lecturer who was just under such massive strain from work mm -hmm. that it affected his mental health. So this isn't just affecting students, is it? No, no. It shouldn't just be focused on students. I mean, most universities do have staff welfare support workers if you like but there this should should not just be students absolutely not you can imagine the sort of strain lecturers are under and it sounds ridiculous when you think about it but actually they are under a lot a lot of stress especially you know tutors who have a lot of marking to do and they're no longer multiple choice questions they are proper long form essays and you can imagine um this recent story uh, he was a cardiff university lecturer he left a note and killed himself. It's incredibly sad because I obviously went to Cardiff University and and he's from Bristol and I now live in Bristol and it's just very difficult to read. Again, you know, the reporting of that story was uh, terrible from the national side of things. Some national papers carried the last note he wrote to his wife and that might sometimes be read out at an inquest. But there's absolutely no need to report on a note that he left for his family you can report that there's been a note you don't need to report the contents of that note that is the dangerous bit about reporting about something like that but coming back to the issue of, of staff welfare yeah absolutely uh, you know you need to you need to take care of the people who are educating your children do you find reporting these stories affects you in quite a big way as well because you get really involved don't you, when, you know, you find out the names, you find out the course, you might be speaking to family and friends and yeah. course mates. Yeah. Do you find that it affects you yourself? Oh, it does, yeah. I mean, um, I was talking to this with Professor Gunnell and saying, I don't know if anyone's actually looked at the mental health of reporters. You know, reporters, some of us go through or read or have to dive into some subjects that are gruesome. 
And if you think about it, we're having to do it, some health reporters have to do it on a weekly basis. Some court reporters do it on a, on a daily basis. Oh, it's, it's tough. Uh, at the same time, when you write about suicide, you know, you've got to take care of your own mental health. Different reporters, I'm sure, handle it in different ways. Drinking, it's not a good way of dealing with it. Um, I know you do a lot of cycling. Look after my mental health getting out and exercising. Yeah, I do a lot of reading and writing. I tend to pen all my thoughts about a certain story or a certain person dying, uh in my own personal diary. So, you know, I find that that helps. And yeah, you know, and people do different things to make it work. But yeah, there there is a strain on reporters. Uh, I think people don't talk about it because sometimes reporters are viewed as a paper or somebody you've never met, but they're human beings, you know. And they're supposed to be, reports are supposed to hold a certain amount of detachment, aren't they, in order to be able to tell stories in an objective yeah. way. But that's not the reality, is it? You know, that we are all people. We, we've we been through these experiences ourselves. We know people that have been through these mm. experiences. And like you say, day in, day out, you sit through some horrible things, basically. Yeah, and I think nothing, it is something that does need to be looked at. There's nothing objective about uh, somebody dying. In terms of being a reporter, all good reporters will become part of their story. They always will. Yeah. And, uh, and this, this is just one of it. Yeah. And Michael, if anyone is struggling with their mental health or needs any help, who can they go to? You can definitely go to Samaritans ring one, one, six, one, two, three. Uh, the Samaritans are 24 seven. They never argue with you. They are great listeners. I've rang the Samaritans myself. I've, I've known people who speak to the Samaritans. Uh, they are wonderful. They never judge. And they always give you very sound, if you like, easy advice to follow. I would say, if you have a problem, bring the Samaritans, 116123. If you're a student uh, at university, go to your counselling services and it might be a waiting list. In the meantime, if you think you have a mental health problem, talk to someone about it. And more and more importantly than anything else, if you know somebody who might have a mental health issue, or you think they might have a mental health issue, Go and talk to them because it's more likely for you to try and approach someone and say, hi, you know, how's your day going? Let's just have a chat. It's much easier for, for you to do that than somebody who's stuck in a little bit of a hole to think, wow, who am I going to talk to? So yeah, just be nice. Well, thanks very much for your time. All right, cheers. Now that's a really sensitive topic that Michael has done fantastic work covering. So thanks very much to him for coming in and explaining how he approaches these stories, which are so, so difficult to cover. Right, that brings this week's episode to an end. Thanks so much for listening to Inside Bristol Live. Don't forget you can rate, review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, chat to us on Twitter at IBL Podcast. We've been produced by Matt Aldous. Thanks very much for listening, guys. See you next week. 